Okay. Awesome. Um. Growing up in Cambria in California, what's before? Uh, it's a tourist town. Uh, not really anything. Um, but the the town, the neighboring town of San Simeon, is known for her castle. Okay. Um, which is cool. William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper publisher from the turn of the twentieth um, century. His like mansion palace, and it's bizarre. Um, he has zebras. <laughs> he has a dining room table. He like imported from like Italy and ketchup bottles on the table like it's just a really strange but beautiful place that people pay lots of money to observe and that's literally the most well-known thing near my town it's pretty rural I see okay um and then can you tell me a little bit about your like educational journey in Cambria and then beyond yeah so I think it being rural is a big part of how I grew up I think when we think of rural America we don't often think of like the idea that a coastal community could be rural um Mm -hmm. but we were really removed from a lot of places because of being on the coast so my high school, for example, was a regional, quote unquote, high school, which meant that mm-hmm. four different towns all fed into the same public high school in order to get enough students and children into the school. Um, so my educational background was really very small town. Uh, you're kind of classic early 2000s late 90s WB show your Everwood your Stars Hollow like that's very Cambria Mm -hmm. vibe um and also pretty remote um I went to public school in part because there weren't really many other options I kind of jumped in and out of some mm-hmm. private schools when I was younger. We went to a Montessori kindergarten. We tried out kind of an experimental outdoor ed school for about a month when I was in second grade. But for the most part, I was in uh, that one coast unified school district, like first grade through high school graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, So then when I went to college, it was a pretty big jump to fly across the country and go to Yale. I was following my brother, so it wasn't quite as, um, it wasn't quite as big of a, like, leap of faith as perhaps it could have been. I had a soft landing in that regard. Um, But New Haven was a city, and the east coast had weather 
and um yeah and the kind of Yale elite vibe was a very new experience for me I see um you mentioned your Mm -hmm. brother and this is an older brother so he and I are a year apart in school and a little over a year and a half in age so we kind of just did everything together and I've followed him around like a puppy for more or less (laughs) my entire life I see. What was your relationship with him like growing up in, yeah, growing up? Um, Well, one of the things about living in Cambria is that we were uh, some of the only Asian American people in town. Um, We Mm. were the only family with Chinese heritage at all. Um, And we're, I'm, so I identify as biracial, my mom's white, my dad's Chinese American. And um, there were about five other families in the area with Asian American heritage. And then the rest of the Mm -hmm. population, for the most part, was either uh, Latinx and predominantly Mexican or white. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, My brother and I stood out in some regards, Mm. um, simply by fact of being Asian American. Um, I think he phenotypically had more Asian features. And so I think Mm -hmm. he stood out even more than I did. And I think I often passed for uh, Mexican. Um, People would speak Spanish to me Mm -hmm. when I was younger. Um, because it, it was something that kind of people expected. Um, but because we stood out, we kind of just banded together a lot. Mm, I see. Okay. Um, how about in your school, were there other sort of people of color, um, like as your classmates or? Yeah, so there was, I mean, like I said, there was a pretty sizable uh, Mexican and Mexican-American community at the school, Mm. Um, but it was really pretty starkly divided along racial and language lines. Um, I see. And so in that regard, I think my brother and I assimilated into the wider community Mm. Um, much more than we spent time in the kind of Mexican-American um, community. I see. Got it. So college was really the first time when you sort of saw other like Asian slash Asian-Americans. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think okay. I, I wasn't even sure if I counted as Asian-American. Um, like mm. I didn't, I really had done very, very little identity work um, by the time I got to college Um, and really like Pollyanna levels of lack of exposure um, Mm -hmm. there I probably interacted with maybe a dozen a couple dozen black folks in my entire life Mm -hmm. prior to going to college. Um, And I don't think I thought about it that much 
um, mm. until I thought about it, right? Like until I consciously thought about it, it would have never occurred to me. Yeah. But, but yeah, I was really kind of lacking in exposure to racial mm. diversity and ethnic diversity too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think the umbrella of Hispanic or the umbrella of Latinx, to me, growing up was, you know, the narrative in my hometown, which was definitely problematic, was that that was just kind of a quote unquote PC term for Mexican, um, which is not the case, mm. right? Right. <laughs> but I, because the majority of the folks who had um, Hispanic or um, Latinx heritage were Mexican. That was what I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so Puerto Rican and um, mm-hmm. and Afro Latino and De- like Dominican and you know just like this wide range of um, ethnic diaspora. Also, I think like mm-hmm. I'd really only met East Asian and some Southeast Asian um, folks in terms of Asian American identities. So I'd not really spent a lot of time with folks that were Indian. I had not really interacted with folks who, um, who had heritage from kind of the MENA region, right? Were Arab Mm -hmm. or um, uh, yeah, just like the wide range of just fundamental lack of exposure was huge. I see. Um, and then would you say in college, like, there, was there a, like, a, like an impetus or um, something like a driving force that sort of made you um, do a little bit more of this self-reflection? Or did it sort of come about more organically? Um, I, I guess there, there are a few things. So the, mm-hmm. the first is a class I took um, uh, with Gitandali Chanda, which was called, let me see if I can remember the exact title. It was um, God, Race, Class, and Gender, Asia and the U.S., a Dialogue. And... Okay. Um, in, in college at Yale, you shopped, quote unquote, classes for the first couple of weeks. And so I remember I went to the very first class and the room was full and it was supposed to be an 18 person classroom and there were easily 50, 60 people in the room. Wow. And um, she asked a question about what we thought of the title of the class and why it seemed, you know, to be potentially ironic. And I raised my hand and said that the United States is a country and Asia is a continent. And um, she smiled and it was the first time I think I felt smart in a class at Yale. Um, And it was like day one. I was like, well, clearly I'm taking this class (laughs) Um, Mm. because it felt, I felt like, Oh, I said a thing and my potential professor thought that was like a good thing to say um and I was really a sucker for authority affirmation um 
so I took the class and it really made me think differently about race and ethnicity. But I think actually at the time, what was more surprising to me was that it made me think differently about gender. It, in my mm. mind, it happened to be cross-listed with the um, women and gender studies department. And I kind of rolled my yeah. eyes um, and was willing to take it anyway. But by the end, you know, I think I came out of that and wrote a term paper about how I'd become a feminist in that class. Wow. Um, so that was kind of the first thing. And then I took a year off midway through college and mm-hmm. I spent the first half uh, pretty aimless. I was working in restaurants. Okay. I was living with a boyfriend I definitely shouldn't have been living with. Um, okay. I was, you know, kind of, kind of wilding out a little bit and directionless. Mm. And I came to re-interview because when you leave, um, when you leave Yale for, (laughs) if you leave for academic reasons, disciplinary reasons, or health reasons, you have to reapply. Mm. And I had left for health reasons. And so I had to, I had to reapply. So I flew back to do the interview um, in person. And I visited with a former professor of mine and kind of mentioned that I'd been living in Los Angeles and working in restaurants. And he asked me why Mm -hmm. I was living where souls go to die, uh, (laughs) which was a really harsh rendering of Los Angeles, which I actually have a lot of affection for. And he told me that, um, you know, maybe I should try to get an internship or try to do something different and mentioned that uh, a friend and former colleague of his had recently taken a position as the director of the Asian American Writers Workshop in New York and was a cool dude and liked poetry and might be somebody that I was interested in Mm -hmm. um, working with and being mentored by. And so I applied to be an intern and, um, uh, you know, I grew up with a lot of financial privilege. My dad was a doctor. And so my parents were able to support me kind of hanging out, doing an unpaid internship in New York for the spring. And so I hung out in the spring and since I was doing it unpaid and most of my peers were doing it while also going to school, Uh, Most of the other Mm -hmm. interns were at Columbia or CUNY or NYU. Um, Yeah. I was there all the time. So I was there like more, like I was there more than 40 hours a week. I didn't have anything else to Mm. do. So I was just there. Um, (laughs) And at the time it was such a small organization that the director was the only full-time job. So Okay. Um, so Ken Chen, um, who's the director and is a, an a incredible poet and, uh, and a man who really transformed my relationship to radical politics. Although I don't think I was mm. especially appreciative at the time we worked together. Um, mm-hmm. he and I spent 
almost every day together for months. The two other employees, okay. the program director and the um, the financial director worked part-time. So I was there more than the two paid employees. Um, so it was just me and Ken in the office yeah. all day, every day. Um, yeah. And, and I kind of thought that I was going there because it had been recommended to me. And I was kind of performing my Asian identity to be able to be welcomed. Mm. Mm. Um, but you read enough, you read enough grant applications and you meet enough Asian Americans and you hear enough Asian American stories. And um, suddenly it's a lot easier to understand where you fit in that community. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that what was your daily role? Nothing. It was so <laughs> wild. I swept the floor some days. I okay. um, condensed uh, grant applications about which I knew nothing. And then suddenly I knew something. Okay. I organized. Mm -hmm. um, I looked for grants that we could apply to that we would be qualified for. So I started using GuideStar and I was like looking through 990. Okay. Um, I wrote blurbs. This is really early Twitter. So it was like 2009. Um, oh, okay. So I started a Twitter account and, mm -hmm. um, and advertised a raffle of a Vespa. I like deeply remember this Vespa raffle. Um, I did some early early adventures with live tweeting, which I was terrible at because I was a perfectionist mm. and so I was so anxious about saying the right thing in the right words. And they were never the right things because I was like a 20-year-old dummy who had no idea what I was doing. Um, mm -hmm. I sold books and took donations at book events. Like it was just a wild, like... I remember I stayed up and printed a grant application and then like went to the only post office that was still open at like midnight one time. Like it was just a wild, weird, mm. delightful, stressful, non-job job. I see. Um, and just, it's, it's the Asian American Writers Initiative? Asian American Writers Workshop, A-A-W-W. Writers Workshop. I see. Um, well, was there like a writing workshop component? Yeah. Like attached yeah. to it? Yeah. So, um, and that was right. It was a former English teacher, former, former English professor. Um, uh -huh. In many ways, I think I would not be who I am without Richard Denning. Um, okay. And one of the perks of being an intern was that you got to take the writing workshop. You got to take a writing workshop for free. So I TA'd a write writing workshop and I took another one for free and basically at some point Ken was like just do whatever you want you're here you live here <laughs> like if you shut the door and lock the door afterwards um yeah great and um so I took a a poetry writing class um mm. I took a I helped with a student weekend initiative where kids were writing comics. Um, okay. Uh, those are the two I remember, but there were others. Okay. 
Um, but this landed in when I finally went back to Yale. Um, I was having lunch with somebody and they mentioned they were going to an Asian American spoken word writing group that I had never known existed okay. in the first two years I was mm. there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this kind of sounds like my jam. Can I tag along? And, and so that was like the third place where I found kind of a home and an identity and really probably the only community at Yale I ever felt like I fully belonged to. Um, mm. And even that, I think I was anxious about my relationship to it. Um, but Juke mm-hmm. Songs, which um, is the name comes from um, the, the derogatory name that parents sometimes gave to their um, American-born children. It stands for bamboo, which is like the hollow reed. So they were Asian looking on the outside and hollow on the uh, inside um but oh my gosh right but the idea of being like so much better than a twinkie yeah yeah um exactly it's the asian version of like it's the chinese version of a twinkie and oh thank you the idea was though that like we were going to fill these hollow reeds with our voices i know i know it's so cheesy and so sweet um, it's lovely. But it was it was really started in part because on campus, there were lots of Asian American, especially men, um, whose faces you saw and voices you never heard. And mm. there was a desire by the people who founded the group to find a space and platform for Asian American voices and to really counter this narrative that Asian Americans were quiet and submissive and opinionless. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it was, it was a really intense experience. That um, mm-hmm. in part, because like there were rules and I think in some ways it was the only space I had in college where there were rules. Like you showed up late, you did X, like, every minute you were late, you did push-ups. We would cheer you <sighs> on. Like, everyone would cheer while you did it. Like, it was warm and supportive. Um, but it was it was the kind of intentional community that yes. um, was really serious about, like, you commit to it, you come to the meetings. You expect to go. Mm-hmm. You don't not come because you have a test tomorrow. You don't not come because you're tired. Like, you committed to this, you go. Um, mm. and, and because of that, I, it was, I was able to really explore my identity. I was able to really expl- reflect with the same people in a kind of robust yeah. way on who I was. And, and, and also because we recruited at shows, you could only join every semester, right? At, like on that break. Oh. Um, and then we would have kind of an open meeting where we talked to people about what it was like to be in the group. And then you said you wanted to join and we took you or you didn't commit to it. Um, okay. And because of that, we had to really explicitly describe what we were as a group and mm. having to work through what it meant to be an affinity space 
was something I'd never yeah. done before. Even when I was at the Asian American Writers Workshop, right? Like the, we served Asian Americans, we celebrated Asian American writers, but white people came to our events, black people came to our events. Like we partnered with all kinds of people um, and affinity spaces, I feel like in the last 10 years have come a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, and 10 years ago, pushing for an affinity space felt really controversial. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, and, I mean, it sounds like, yeah, sort of, let's say like creative exploration or like creative outlet are sort of the common denominators in both AAWW and um Remind me of the name of this group again. Juke songs. Juke songs. Yeah. Um, now, was there any, um, yeah, like teaching slash like doing the workshop on your part, that of like being an educator in this space on your part? Yeah. I wow. Yes, and I had never thought about that. Um, but yeah, that's totally how I learned how to teach. <laughs> because okay. everybody had to, the workshop functioned. Sorry, that was going to be really confusing. Juke, so- Juke songs met once a week. And okay. the regular meetings were referred to as workshops. And then okay. every term we put on a production where everybody mm-hmm. would perform a piece. Um, mm-hmm. And mostly it was kind of, narratives or stories or some kind of reflection sometimes it was more poetic but it wasn't we were a spoken word group not in the kind of slam tradition but in the okay uh probably in in more ways akin to kind of your vagina monologues okay energy around like we're going to talk about being Asian American at Yale, essentially. Um, And we're going to talk about that in really intimate and explicit ways. Mm -hmm. And um, building up to that, we did writing workshops. And Mm -hmm. the way writing workshops worked is that two people led them every Monday, and the two people who led them couldn't lead them the next week. So it was always rotating. And you were always in partnership with another person in developing what the workshop was going to look like. Mm. Um, And so the workshop um, would be, um, we always started with some kind of check-in where everyone would kind of say how they were doing and what was going on in their lives. And then we would do anywhere from like one to three smaller writing prompts or activities and then one longer writing prompt, and then we would critique each other's pieces. Okay. And so these workshops lasted, like there were probably, there were usually around 10 of us in the group. And these workshops would sometimes, they started at 9 p.m. And we would often still be going at 1 (laughs) a.m. So like these were really long processes. that's so cool. But yeah, I, but I started to learn what it meant to like try to get everyone's voice heard, um, give feedback in ways that were constructive mm. and not hurtful, um, work with people who had different visions of what um, they wanted out of the experience. 
and ask questions that were generative and creative Mm -hmm. and at at, like at, at varying levels of difficulty right that idea that you like start soft and kind of get deeper yeah and I had never connected the fact that I did that for two and a half years to the fact that I teach but it's totally similar it's totally baked into my philosophy as a teacher. Okay. Yeah, when you would sort of prepare, um, when it was your turn to um, lead a workshop, right? And mm-hmm. you needed to sort of prepare for um, like the sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, what what did you do? Like, did you... You would get together with whoever else you were planning it with and you would like, okay. you know, go quick coffee or meet in a dorm or whatever. And you would come up with a theme. So there would be mm. some kind of theme for the evening. And then you would, and often it was related to, because you had to justify this. So it was often related to uh, what was going on in your life and what okay. was going on in their life. So often mm-hmm. we start that meeting with a check-in and then say like, it sounds like I'm hearing in your story and in my story, these connecting themes. I see. And then we would say, okay, if we want to dig into these themes, what are certain questions? Um, what are certain activities we could do mm-hmm. that would generate stories and reflection about these themes? So like, let's say we were talking about heartbreak. Maybe we would say like, um, what are, list 10 movies that come to mind when you think about falling in love. And um we would all do that. Maybe like share with the person next to you, right? That think, pair, share, right, pair, share kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm, share with mm-hmm. the person next to you, um, your list, and that person's going to circle two movies on your list. Yeah. And then write about the two movies that they circled. And then, okay. right, some people, and then we would all like popcorn share if you wanted to read. Um, and then that would eventually get to like, okay, um, a bigger question, something like, uh, do you feel like you've ever been in love or, mm. um, when was the last time you fell in love or who's a person like write about a person that you love or, um, write about, um, a time someone broke your heart, right? Like I something see. like that. And then we'd spend a longer period writing that one and then do that kind of critique. So generating those questions would be part of that kind of planning process. I see. And you you enjoyed that collaborative process with your partner. Yeah, it, I think it was, it's actually one of the things I, I see reflected in my current school that I, mm. I really like about teaching and I like about group work. There's, there's affirmation in working with somebody else you can see in their face or in their energy or in Mm -hmm. their response you can hear when something is really connected with them right and uh that's something you can't do on your own and so I think that when you kind of develop plans for lessons for activities for projects with other people Mm -hmm. you end up with a much better final product because you're working kind of outside of just yourself Mm -hmm. um and at my current school 
we have collaborative meetings. We all meet once a week with the collaborative group of whoever is teaching the same course we are at the same time and talk about kind of what our plan is for that week or what the next major assessment is going to be or, um, you know, if we're thinking about swapping out a reading assignment and it's, it's a really rich curricular initial like curricular development practice i see i see um and then christiana in terms of yeah sort of um like graduating from college and then thinking about sort of what you should do um was the first thing that you did out of college education yeah okay yeah and Um, tell me about that so this is another Richard Deming shout out where uh, okay. he and I were talking and I mentioned that I was thinking about teaching, but that I was a little disillusioned with TFA and that mm-hmm. poor man listened to me talk about my feelings beyond when he was my teacher so many times. I think in, <laughs> in many ways, it's why when my students want to talk to me about anything or everything, I will sit there for hours and listen because I just like have to pay it forward. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I mentioned that I was kind of disillusioned with the TFA model because when I'd asked the recruiters on campus, um, why should I do TFA if I was already planning on teaching? Yeah. Um, I wasn't really convinced by their answer. Okay. And I wasn't sure that the kind of like rapid education was the way I wanted to right? The kind of five week crash course in um, how to be a teacher. Yeah, was was what I wanted. I was concerned about going into communities that I didn't identify with as we started this podcast. Really, college was my first exposure to real diversity. Um, And so I didn't, I didn't want to be a kind of paternalistic outsider coming in and telling people Mm -hmm. how to make their lives better. Um, And so he mentioned that I could work in a private school. And I was like, that sounds crazy. And he was like, look up Carney Sandow. I was like, look up what? He's like, it's a recruitment <laughs> firm. Um, they recruit for private schools. And I'd never heard of it. Um, but I looked it up. And then I found out they were going to be visiting our school. And so, um, you know, I kind of started to, to seek out private schools and those possible options um, and landed with a teaching fellowship at Choate Rosemary Hall. Mm. So I taught a dramatically reduced load, had dorm duties, coached a sport I had no business coaching and, you know, wore any hat I could wear (laughs) while trying to figure out how to teach. Um, I see. And I loved it. Did you feel like you were able to, yeah, connect with your students right away? Yeah. Um, I think, I think that was something I never really worried about. Okay. Uh, I like teenagers. Mm-hmm. I, if you put me in a room with middle schoolers, I will break into a cold sweat. Um, I say this from experience. When I worked at a pre-K through 12 school, every time I had to give a presentation to the middle school about diversity initiatives or what have you, 
I would leave like dripping wet on those days I would in anticipation bring a second shirt or outfit to wear to change into like so stressful Mm. but anyway um yeah I love teenagers they're so dramatic everything is um oh my god yeah so end of the world high stakes drama filled yeah um (laughs) deeply narcissistic and yet like (laughs) so big hearted yes right they're just like and I was I was always of like big emotions big feelings um storytelling mm-hmm. kind of person so yeah I was I was all about it I was like you want to gossip what could be more fun <laughs> you like watching the like WBCW so do I I know that uh-huh. doesn't make me convince you that I'm a real adult but <laughs> At least we have something in common. Mm. Um, and yeah, from from that sort of um, beginning stages of uh, starting your career in education, um, and then fast forward a few years um, in your current position now, sort of what things have changed for you and what sort of things have remained the same? Um, oh, I think that I think I have a lot more empathy for students now than I used to. Okay. Um, I think I used to have the sense that there were good students and bad students, that there mm. were hardworking students and lazy students, that there were um, students who deserved opportunities and students who threw them away. Um, And well, yeah, like I still have the occasional student who drives me nuts or, Mm -hmm. you know, makes me really frustrated or is disappointing. I have a much more, I have a much deeper well of sympathy for the kinds of scenarios that lead children to, to make choices to not do not try as hard as they could or to try too hard um Mm. to i've a i have the sense that children aren't lazy something's going on Mm. um i have the sense that children aren't um mean they're hurting Mm. Uh, and i think those kinds that kind of philosophy has really shifted how I approach something going wrong in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I anticipated that I would be a stricter, more rigorous, high standards teacher. And I do want and seek out excellence from my students and often see it. But I I'm I've begun to understand that a nurturing environment, an environment where you feel seen, an environment and where you feel valued allows you to thrive. Mm. Um, and that when you can create a relationship with a student so that 
they feel respected and valued by you, they will respect and value you back. Um, and yeah. you can leverage that relationship to have conversations when something is going wrong mm -hmm. and really see the returns of that relationship when they do their work for class, participate, turn in assignments, so on and so forth. Yeah, totally. Um, and then, you know, your role as um, someone who teaches service learning, right? Mm. This was something that I was totally unfamiliar with. I did not know that, um, you know, such a like subject existed. Um, and I'm wondering, yeah, through what is your number one thoughts on um, sort of this role slash this, um, yeah, subject that you teach in? Um, yeah, and sort of your favorite aspects about being a teacher of service learning. Uh, so I landed in the service learning department really because I had previously been a director of diversity in an independent school and I uh, loved doing equity work, but no longer wanted to be responsible mm. for an entire school. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to stay within the realm of equity work. And at the school I'm at now, the equity curriculum is housed in the service learning curriculum. And that's okay. not unusual. It's often, okay. um, and I think, in my opinion, the best service curriculums are grounded in identity and um, equity work before they engage in service. And so I think uh, our school in that regard really, really buys into that such that the scaffolding um, and scope and sequence for the curriculum at our school is that the first year, right, our ninth graders do a class called Identity and Ethnic Studies. We don't do, mm -hmm. they don't do any service. They don't go outside of the school. They are not doing quote unquote community service. Okay. Um, they're just getting to know themselves and learning the difference between race and ethnicity, mm -hmm. starting to get comfortable saying, saying racial identities out loud. It's amazing mm -hmm. how uncomfortable so many American children and American adults are saying words like black and white when talking about racial identities. So yeah. really just like getting into a little bit more knowledge and comfort with their own identities yeah. and discussion of identities. I see. And then the, the second year is about community. The third year is about institutions. And then mm. the last year is about systems. And okay. so it's this like building wow. from self outward. I um, see which is the, the core cool. principle. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's by design, both by the school, but also by the, the people who've been working on refining this curriculum at the school yeah. for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, there, I think there's a reason why you start at the individual level, right? Mm -hmm. Because every year, like you have to place yourself in the community as a person, exactly. like in the institution as a person. Um, and I'm wondering, yeah, sort of in your, like, you know, we talked about your identity work that you've had to do um, as a mm -hmm. college student. 
um, and sort of, yeah, letting you wrestle, like how you had to sort of go through the wrestling process um, and sort of, yeah, def defining process of, for you as an Asian American person. Um, mm. Do you feel like you bring in, or is there an opportunity for you to sort of bring that, like, you know, personal story, um, sort of writing workshop-esque atmosphere into your classrooms? Yeah, it's funny. I actually think that comes out more in my history classes in okay. terms of like my own identity, in part because, you know, I, I teach an Asian American history elective. Mm, um, wow. uh, I teach a constitutional law elective and we're talking about rights. It's really hard to avoid identity. I teach mm -hmm. American history, um, so on and so forth. Um, but I actually in the service learning classes when we're talking about um, when we're talking about equity, I'm actually often talking about myself as, as kind of a bumbling young dummy who okay. made a lot of mistakes and had some views that had elements of, uh, of, of discriminatory kind of coded origins and, mm. Um, trying to offer the idea to my students that you really uh, can grow and and learn and that it's okay to make some mistakes when you're young mm -hmm. and um, as long as they're not harming other people. Um, mm -hmm. But even if they are harming other people, what does it look like to repair? Um, mm. Because what we're trying to do in those classrooms is engender in the kids a sense that you can have difficult and intimate and vulnerable conversations with each other and suspend judgment of yourself and grace for other people in the room. Yeah. And I think that's tricky. I think there is an element of that, that we have to be careful. We're not just centering whiteness. And mm. um, exclusively focused on protecting kind of fragile, privileged feelings at the expense of the most marginalized members of our community. And yeah. I think in that regard, that's part of where my identity comes out. And that's part of where I think it is valuable to have an adult in the room and an educator mm -hmm. in the room because you can shut down some of the narratives that are untrue yeah. um, that often circulate when children are having these conversations or adults are having these conversations. I see. Um, and then Christiana, before I sort of ask about, you know, like where, what's next for you? Um, <laughs> a question that I want to ask is how do you want your students to remember you as a teacher? Um, it's funny. I ask my kids to think about this for themselves all the time. And I have legitimately not thought about this for myself. I'm always talking to my kids about thinking about their legacy at the school mm. and, um, and how, your legacy is less about what grades you got on a paper and more about being somebody in the hallway who says hi and mm -hmm. um, 
sitting with somebody when they were having a hard day and, uh, you know, making those, taking those kind of moments of, of kindness and generosity and goodwill. Uh, and I think, I think I want my students to see me as somebody, remember me as somebody who pushed them to challenge their existing views mm. and to extend more grace to themselves in making mistakes and others. Man, I wish I had a teacher like you in high school, for sure. <laughs> Um, (laughs) and yeah what's next Christiana like do you see yourself um in this role um what is the purpose of you pursuing Klingenstein Mm. what's next for you Uh, so I I think for me Klingenstein is a lot of processing what happened rather than planning for the future yeah Um, so thinking about the role that I previously had in leadership Mm. and why some pieces of it went really well and why some pieces of it did not go as well. Mm -hmm. And thinking about what tools I want under my belt were I to ever pursue leadership in an independent school again um, and setting myself up to feel uh, better equipped if the occasion arose. Um, But I think, you know, we're in year two. And one of the things that I felt like I came away with after year one was that I, I don't think I do want the traditional roles that we conceive of as leadership roles in a school in the future. Um, And I think part of that is because I don't necessarily feel like I can be my authentic self and do fulfill some of the roles and responsibilities that are Mm -hmm. associated with some of the leadership positions. Um, It's also because I find that um, I think one of my leadership strengths is that I, I name moments that I think are unfair or unjust, whether I want to be the one naming them or not. Uh, And that's, Right, heckling in a in a faculty meeting is a very different position from convincing the rest of the faculty that the decision moving forward is the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, and Megan talked about how um, Megan Laverty, or one of our professors from last year, often talked about how you could approach texts in multiple different ways. And I think that I approach life in kind of a like mm. hermeneutics of critique. Um, that's my <laughs> default. I don't think it should always be my default. And I think that's a growth area for me. Mm. But I like to be in a place where I am, I, I'm a member of the community and leading by working with the community. I think yeah. I've been really inspired as a history teacher by people who did um, work in uh, equal justice movements that 
encourage decentralized leadership. Mm -hmm. Ella Baker is my home girl. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the idea that, um, of leadership being training people to be leaders, I think is really compelling to me. And I think of that in my students and that in my peers. Um, and so, and I also think that like, I have to wrestle with my own ego and, um, my own, uh, sense of accomplishment as an affirmation of my worth Mm. and that, um, there's a real danger in me pursuing some leadership positions for the sake of being able to uh, prove that I have value or worth or have accomplished something rather than yeah. the genuine mission of feeling like I could do a good job in that role. Totally. And so I think right now it's really thinking about what does it mean to be a teacher leader? What does it mm-hmm. mean to be um, thinking about especially right now when we're seeing generation Z or <laughs> Zoomers, <laughs> which is such a funny name, especially now. Um, yeah. But when we're seeing Zoomers really work in collective action from a couple years ago and, you know, the response to school shootings, to the climate march last year, to Mm -hmm. all of the really kids in the streets right now protesting uh, police violence against black and brown people. Um, And I say brown in part because in the state of California, so much of that violence is against the, um, the brown Latinx community uh, and has to do not just with police, but ice. Um, Not because I think that it's not that police are exercising brutality against black people in disproportionately large ways. I think that's true. Um, But I think California has kind of a, a, a slightly different slant given its history as part of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so we're seeing kids really lead those movements. Kids be the ones who are willing to be radical. And so I think it's really important to have more touch points with more kids, which you can do as a teacher. And you really struggle to do when you're in an administrative position. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I think um, this thought about that, what does it mean to be yeah, a teacher leader without having that, you know, like job title or like a job description um, with the responsibilities that you don't necessarily want or um, know that, yeah, there will be, yeah, just parts of it where you're just not like passionate about fulfilling in that JD, right? So I think that building the JD as you go, like being your own, um, yeah, job description creator, I think that's the goal for all of us too. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Christiana, thank you. We went way over time as well. (laughs) (laughs) This could, yeah. Like, you know, if we were together in person, like, you know, it it doesn't have to end at 20 minutes at 55 minutes, right? Right. Like like it could have gone on for, for For hours on end. For sure. But thank you. Well, thank you.